Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode we're going to be looking at zines that explore a sense of place. And if you haven't heard of the word zine before and you're thinking what on earth is that, I am going to let you know right now. So zines are independent publications which have a small circulation and they can cover a variety of topics and themes. However, quite a few of them tend to cover niche subculture topics and they can be full of art, personal stories, politics, culture, they can be experimental to do with music and really they help give ordinary people a platform to share their passions and thoughts because it's all homemade, do it yourself. So today's episode is going to be a little different to usual as I've read multiple great zines over the last year with strong themes relating to a sense of place I thought it'd be nice to get some of the creators on to discuss the process behind their zines what they're about and what they hope people will get out of their work as a result this is going to be a bit of a bumper episode and I'll be chatting to Christian Kitson and Kieran Cutting creators of the Lost Future zine Richard Daniels the creator of Occultarian of Albion, and finally Simon Morton, who is the creator of multiple zines with a strong sense of place. So I think as it's a long episode, we're just going to jump right into it. And first up, I chat to Christian and Kieran, the creators of the Lost Futures zine. In summary, Lost Futures is all about the worlds that could have been, should have been, or weren't. So it has strong links to hauntology. Also, just a quick note, after we recorded, Kieran sent me a message telling me uh, at one point during our conversation, he mentions The Artist's Way being by Julia Middleton, but it's actually by Julia Cameron. And um, Julia Middleton was the CEO of a charity he worked with once. So if you're looking for that book and you search Julia Middleton, do change that to Julia Cameron, otherwise it probably won't come up. But anyway, we'll crack on with today's episode now, and I really hope you enjoy this uh, style of episode. This is my first podcast episode with two guests, so I think it would probably be useful if you two introduce yourself so the listeners know whose voice belongs to who, yeah. who's Christian, who's Kieran, and let us know a little bit about the roles you play when it comes to creating the Lost Future zine. I'll go first. So uh, I'm Kieran. Um, I am. God, how how do we how do we separate the responsibilities there? I I make visual things happen. Um, and uh, you know, I I I turned to Christian one day and was like, "Do you want to do this mad thing with me?" Um, that's that's about how we can uh, separate those. I think. Yeah. So basically, I'm I'm Christian. By the way. Um, yeah. So um, Kieran is is very active on on Twitter and puts his. Uh, excellent skills to use with uh, most of the social media and promotion of the zine um i think my i'm slightly more involved in the sort of behind the scenes um editing part of it but um, the, the visual design is, is definitely kira can take credit for that mostly <laughs> and so i i do a lot of the um you know sort of close editing of the like written pieces mostly so uh i'd say i, I deal more with <laughs> words yeah <laughs> It's a clumsy way of putting it. So what can the readers expect? Like, say they bought their copy of the Lost Future zine. What's it all about? What are they going to find inside? 
So I think the can I remember the the, the brilliant copy paste pitch we have? Lost Futures <laughs> that is, is so good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a zine about uh, futures that could have been, should have been, or weren't. And that's maybe what it is. Um, so it is full of prose and poetry and art um, of all different kinds. We've been like since the beginning. We've been very uh, sort of medium agnostic. Uh, I think we've always we've always said like uh, if you've got an idea, we'll find a way to to put it in there. So it's yeah, it's a lot of different a lot of different things, um, but they're all based around this idea of lost futures, things that that should have been, you know, the things that maybe hurt a little bit too much when you think about them too hard, or you know, the the, the other side of that, I guess, is the sort of almost like the material culture of that, you know, places and things that. They show their age, you know. They 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 wear the marks of nostalgia and memory, things like that. Mm. Yeah, well, Kieran has covered that very comprehensively. <laughs> um, yeah. So our, our main uh, sort of our main goal, you know, our main goal was always to uh, produce a sort of a printed physical copy that you can hold in your hands. Um, but we are interested in any sort of medium, any sort of form. Um, we want lost futures to be able to accommodate. Um, submissions whatever format they come in so um we've recently received some uh, some like short films and pieces of music that we can't exactly print but we just feel like we have to include them in some way so with that because we we just we feel like it's just so much um it just really speaks to um sort of the energy we're about and the we are looking at ways of uh, being able to publish these things in something branded as Lost Futures. So we're looking at different digital technologies, um, like we're looking at like VR and ways of basically making like um, a digital exhibition space to show like more visual art and music and ways of interacting with things like that. That sounds really cool. Wow, that's a complete new level to it, isn't it? Yeah, that's it's very much a work in progress, but it's just you know being able to do things um, uh, online and with uh, like uh, reader or, or sort of more be user interaction in this sense, it just it unlocks so many more possibilities of engaging with with content. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. definitely, and I know obviously the first one's come out, which I really enjoyed, and you've got the second one coming, and you kind of slightly have a theme for each. So, like, is that something you planned in advance or did it just kind of work out that way that you kind of have a slight theme for the submissions? Yeah, well, like, definitely with volume one, the the theme was sort of made up after the fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, like, I, you know, like, and, and this is, this is I think, where the, the, like, the real collaborative element of this started to come about, where, like, for ages, I just had, like, an InDesign file on my computer with a, b- a bunch of submissions in. And I was like, I don't know how to fucking make this look. Um, and then, you know, like, it started to come together. Well, I- actually, I was I was back in uh, in our hometown, and it was this really foggy day. This is the, the cover of uh, the first volume of Lost Futures. It was a really foggy day, and um, a place that's mentioned in, in one of the pieces that I wrote there... I was nearby and I was like, ah, oh, crap, of course, this is the cover. And then once that, you know, once once that had happened, uh, sort of almost accidentally, um, then it felt like, oh, this is 
this is not just like this is not a one-off this is not an issue this is like this is a volume of something um mm. and at first it was uh the much more pretentiously titled uh well so in search of lost time comes from proust right but i've not actually read proust no one's read proust um so at first the working title was the the french title of proust book um a la recherche de temps perdu um and then i was like that's fucking pretentious in search of lost time (laughs) call it what it is so yeah that that was not premeditated but once we got to that point we're like yeah we need these clear like i don't know exploring these different aspects of it i guess so volume two being still life, volume three is meanwhile, we're compiling that at the moment. And then we're just thinking about, you know, what those different aspects of that might be. Um, and I mean, actually, I, I don't know if you want to speak about this question, but, uh, you know, like when when we kept, well, the the idea for still life was 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 mine. And at first Christian was just like, I don't get it. I wh- What have you done? Why? Yeah, well, I think my uh, my initial um, sort of, not, not disgust, but my initial sort of recoiling... <laughs> <laughs> it was just quite interesting because I just didn't understand. I was having this, I describe it as like an extreme reaction to it. Um, just like, I just couldn't, it was, I, I just, it was like I I was conscious that I was refusing to listen to it. Um, and I think it, I sort of slowly realized that I was, I was, sort of, I was feeling this way because well, uh, I, I sort of, as a yeah, over the course of the last year, as a result of pande- the pandemic and various um, conditions of that, um, I've recently moved back to my hometown, uh, you know, our hometown, um, and sort of being based in this space where I've, you know, spent so many years of my life, I, I've realised that I, I did, that was like a moment of still life I was experiencing, and a sort of. Realizing that, I guess, sort of unlocked it for me. Then you're um, like, I get it. Yeah, I get it. Like, that's I it. vividly like... remember. I vividly remember you just being like, I don't want to think about still life anymore, Kieran. I'm, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, of course, it was it was quite a, a cathartic experience to be able to you know to write about that for the zine. Um, and then you know, I, I had this brilliant moment when, when I started reading submissions for, for issue two, Still Life, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it feels like I'm really stating the obvious here, but like other people understand Still Life in a different way than I, you know, and that's really, and that's really what we were going for, really. I think it's, it wasn't really an intention of this, but um, we've, re- we've realised that um, our, our themes, you know, tend to be, you know, unlike the, you know, uh, the original uh, French title of Issue One. <laughs> you know, at the, at the moment we're trying quite simple themes um, because you know the simplest terms are often you know most open to interpretation, um, and it's just so good to you know to give a prompt and to give and to get so many different uh, pieces of art come in which are you know they've they've got something in common but they're so different to each other. People take them. You know, people take the theme in so many different directions yeah I really like that element of it it's it's so open isn't it it's everyone has a different perspective just under that theme don't they and I was going to ask what led you to create the zine I suppose in a way you've sort of answered that a bit oh so many things (laughs) we've got a long version too (laughs) yeah go on then oh well that's the thing there are so many different angles on this um we've been we've been friends for a long time and I feel like we've sort of jokingly said like, oh, we should 
start a uh, we, we should start a magazine we should we should write a book we should do this we should do that but like and that's always been our equivalent of we should buy a bar <laughs> yeah that, that has also been something which was said but like i guess this has been inevitable for like the past decade or something but, um <laughs> Yeah, so slowly building towards this through years of friendship is one angle. Um, yeah, and another thing is just sort of going back to what I was saying about the um, the sort of the suffocating stillness of being back in a hometown with no, you know, with no sort of exit plan. I guess was um, I guess well, what, well, partially it's just escapism, I guess, but. Um, I, I was just getting loads of ideas around, like you know, walking around these streets that I've known so many. You know, I've, I've, so many things have happened around here, and I remember saying to Kieran once, "It's like um, it's, it's like I'm, I'm walking around this place and like all the all the different timelines or all the different like te- spaces of or like you know temporal spaces of it experience over my life. It's like I'm experiencing everything at once sometimes." Um, mm. Like like we're walking around, walking around some woods and remembering all the times that we've been there together, and it it became our sort of regular spot to walk to together. And I remember like reflecting on that and thinking about like all the different stories we've told each other and all the different, you know, look, looking back on this time we spent together in the past, like. There were so many different futures that we'd imagined for ourselves then, and there's just so much to to explore like that. And, and then the like the immediate prehistory was that we were both stupid and did Julia Middleton's The Artist Way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, I don't know. I never finished it, Christian. But did you? Did you manage to get all the way through? I, it I did not? finish it, but I mean, it's meant it's meant to be wow. a twelve week course, and I probably took at least double that if not more <laughs> um, <laughs> but from that like uh you know we we got we got this energy of just like saying yes to things and we're like oh, we should do this thing uh and you know we were trying to like sort of pay more attention to what we were saying no to i guess and being like oh actually you know there's this idea that we haven't explored that we've been talking about for ages in some form or another um and it you know it very much like channeled back to you know being in those woods all the time um and like you know, growing up in a very much like post Thatcher, post industrial town, like there's there's nothing to do where we grew where up. Where are you two from then? We're from Medway, um, in Kent. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of it to be fair. So. It's a bit crap. Oh, it's it, it's such a. It, I, I feel like it's such a strange place because there's so much here, but yet there's also <laughs> there's also nothing here. It's like it is. It's sort of post. It, it does sometimes feel like it's post everything. <laughs> like we've got, um, yeah, like you know, it's even like the culture is is dominated by this, you know, sense of post post, uh, you know, post Thatcher, post nineteen eighties closure of the dockyard here, um, and we've got like a lovely stretch of riverside which is like, littered with rusting mm. old barges. Um, and I was just saying to Kieran earlier that like I just don't. What was it? No, Kieran, you brought this up to me. You're talking yeah. about the the great barges on the roof and i just i don't even see them yeah, anymore it's just they're, just, part of the fabric, isn't they're it? just so yeah absolutely they just weave themselves into the landscape yeah so to be fair that sounds like the town you live in might have really helped <laughs> <laughs> make the scene have. a lot i reckon mm. 
why do you think you are fascinated by futures that never were? Probably all these walks in the woods that around this town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that has uh, a little too much responsibility to bear for it. Um, in that, yeah, we were just, you know, like uh, so. Christian, Christian went to uni in Kent. I went the other side of the country. Um, and when I'd come home, you know, like we, you know, we live what fifteen minutes from each other. Or well, my parents' house is like fifteen minutes yeah, from your parents' house. And I just text you, and we just go to the woods with like, uh, you know, like three beers. You know, <laughs> not no, nothing crazy, but just you know, go to the woods, three beers, talk about what I've been doing, reminisce, leave. Um, and I think part of you know what became Lost Futures is maybe that sense of nostalgia, but then also it's like turning that nostalgia into something more than that, right? Like in my you know in my not Lost Futures world, um, I do like academic research on futures and my academic work seems like focuses a little bit more on like more positive futures and like how we can do world building sort of things um but like you know the other side of building a world is actually giving a chance to mourn and grieve the worlds that aren't going to happen um because i mean jesus christ you know the the majority of conversations at, at one point uh, that christian and i were having were definitely just about that <laughs> yeah yeah i did love that intro you did for the zine just sort of saying you know really look at yourself a year ago or a few years ago and think you know are you the same and you you feel like you are the same but then when you look back you're right you're really not it's like who were you talk like you said who were you talking to all the time at that point it's someone different it's it all happens so rapidly yeah absolutely I, I think you know a large a large part of this was that um you know scratching that nostalgic itch is you know it is pleasurable but um yeah and you know, mourning, you know, mourning the dreams that never came to be, is definitely you know a big part of it. There's a lot to you know, there's a lot to unpack with things like that. But um, another side of this, um, which I think we've had so many great submissions that are sort of tapping into this, you know, the sort of alternate side of lost futures, I'd say, is that we've had a lot of things which are engaging in um, sort of working through traumatic memories or traumatic experiences. And the healing processes from these, because you know, in some in some cases, you know, lost futures or, or losing, you know, losing something can be a positive thing. It's like you know, I feel like the the words lost futures kind of suggest a negativity there. But um, we've come across so many things or so many different ways in which you know, losing a sense of the future uh can be the, the best possible thing like you know cutting yourself off from cutting yourself off from a, a toxic future so no i completely agree i think you know like you say when you hear lost futures futures that never were you probably instantly associate it with that it's sad that it never got to be but some futures aren't worth seeing through and by cutting it off you can open yourself up to something far more positive a much more positive future so what do you study academically Kira? and like what what stance is this coming from <laughs> uh this is this is going to be a wild ride um so so i guess i'm a sociologist i uh anyone listening to this who knows me will just laugh at me at this point uh because i can just never fix on anything um so I sort of sit between like sociology and geography and design and science, technology and society studies. And like my work, I do a lot of work around austerity and young people, but 
uh, like also the role of technology within all of this um and so um just coming to the sort of tail end of my phd and a lot of my work at this point focuses on like methods for future building i guess um so i'm, I'm coming at it um so the you know for, for those who don't know the the title of the zine is is from um from mark fisher's work so mark fisher uh, has this idea of lost futures which is sort of uh what's the easiest way to explain it a lot of his work focuses on this idea of the slow cancellation of the future um the idea that um you know capitalism has become so entrenched at this point that it's hard to even imagine meaningful alternatives to it and uh and so a lot of his latter work focused on uh this idea of lost futures particularly in in like kind of material cultures so like thinking about um let's say a good example from recent history at the you know, sort of tail end of the first lockdown last year, when you could still go into well, where I am at least, at least in Newcastle, uh, you could go into town and see like restaurants advertising their Mother's Day menus because that was the last thing that was up before they closed. Um, and you know, fully knowing that 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 future, and this is a, such a small thing, but you know, that future has passed. Or again, another one from Newcastle that that Christian and I are kind of obsessed with. There, there are these like sort of elevated walkways all throughout the city um, that were the sort of like product of a sort of nineteen sixties attempt to you know really like make Newcastle like something that you know, people wanted to visit. The, there was this idea of making it the, the Brasilia of the North. Um, and so they started construction on all these elevated walkways and like this sort of futuristic vision of a city that you would never have to cross a road. And then the the leader of the council who was like the sort of visionary of this got put in prison for, I think, embezzlement or corruption. Um, and then they just stopped stopped building them. And so they're all around the city. There are still these, you know, these elevated walkways that you know, they just end. They don't go places. Um, and unfortunately, like they, you know, the, they are going about a process at this point of trying to get yeah. rid of them. And and I can, you know, there are all sorts of things why that might be a useful thing, but it's also tremendously sad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like my academic work is based in thinking about methods that we can practically use to build futures. And uh, particularly, like, I come at that in a sort of like, how can i work a lot in like youth and social work so like how can we use um sort of speculative methods to help people think of different better futures that they can actually practically work towards as well oh cool it kind of does tie in nicely with this whole lost futures thing i feel like you would notice stuff a lot more like you clearly know like you were just saying in the landscape there yeah you've got an eye for spotting stuff like that <laughs> yeah and it's also just you, you know there's a there's a pub that i think i think we went there christian there's a there's a pub in newcastle um that you know you can sit out on the terrace and you just have one of these like walkways that just stops right like above you and you're just like what the yeah it's so surreal <laughs> um, oh wow so definitely an eye but also you know it's the city that <laughs> the city that doesn't let you not notice yeah and i mean what what do you hope people will get out of the zine and your work What's the hope there? I think honestly, um, well, one of one of the reasons that I um, wanted to put so much time into this was that um, I've just been struggling with severe case of writer's block for a long time, um, and like zine format especially. Um, and after having read the artist's way and uh, sort of working in the mentality of 
you know, just just do it, just follow the energy, just just write what you've got and just keep going with it. It's just such a positive thing. And a, a big part of what we want people to get out of this is honestly, we want people to read this and then want to submit. You know, we want this, we want reading Lost Futures to be something which encourages people to, you know, engage with ideas that they may have around this. And uh, we want it, we want it to grow through uh, engaging, you know, we're engaging people's own interests, I guess. Yeah, like I think that 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 that's a really good summary of that question. Like uh, I think you know, so many of the people that have been in issues one and two uh, are people that haven't published before, and you know, some of them are friends, some of them are strangers, um, but like they are people that for, you know they they for the first time have been like, oh yeah, I will I will send something to that, and then you know we've published it, and like I mean, genuine. This sounds so trite, but like seeing how like excited that makes people. Like I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure she won't mind me saying, Lydia Pell, who, uh, whose artwork features as the cover of Volume Two, um, was just so excited to, you know, to be the cover of of something, um, and like that at this point, that that wasn't why, you know, that wasn't why we started it. For me, it was this very selfish, self indulgent thing of I want to make something, but I don't want to make something that I have to fill every page of. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like now at this point, I'm like, you know, I want to help. I want to help that energy to keep going. Like people get so much out of this. And I, I remember seeing a um, like a thread on Twitter maybe about two, three months ago. Um, and it was from a zine or a, or a lit mag that had been like, uh, you know, they thought about maybe changing their payment model um, to their authors. And they were like, no, you know what? Like if if I can pay the people that have submitted to this 30 quid, then and they and they do something with that 30 quid that they wouldn't do otherwise that's worthwhile to me like and i think mm. similarly with us like it's definitely this thing of like you know that, that it makes people you know really take their own work seriously um, when they're just like wow like that's that's been published and i've got some money for that and that's insane um so yeah i think that and also just like this sense of healing that we spoke about a couple times like definitely i've had a good amount of personal healing through making the scene i know some of the contributors who are friends of ours there's definitely been a healing process there there have been people working through stuff through the art that we've published um and like i mean actually a huge one for me you know the the middle piece of uh volume one the afterlife of blooms and the, and the cover was me working through a lot of personal stuff so i hope that people that can that people that read it and people that submit to it like are able to sort of go on that healing journey yeah no i think that's really lovely everything you've said about that you know and i get what you mean like if you get something published like it's, it's exciting and it's nice to share that with people isn't it and the fact that you can do that that's that's really really nice and um you know, if somebody is listening and they're thinking, I want to submit, what's the criteria? Do you have, I mean, what if you get like hundreds of things? Do you think, oh, we better not publish this or do you just hold back? And Oh, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but as I was saying earlier, though, um, well, we, we're really, you know, obviously we're, we're just, um, we just closed submissions on our third issue. Um, and so looking back at issues one and two, issues, issue two grew in length quite significantly compared to issue one simply because we were getting such a high quality of you know such a high quantity of real high quality submissions 
Um, and maybe we need to uh, sort of check ourselves a bit with how, how large we let this become. But um, yeah, it's, it's, we, well, we're really, we look, if we, if we, I think we just sort of get a bit not ahead of ourselves, but if we see something we like, we want to publish it. Um, and because of that, we've been thinking. Or I, I touched on the sort of um, the digital and like virtual reality ideas we've got. But um, Kieran, do you want to say something about the um, the mini editions that we've got planned? Yeah, well, like also just to just to say, like uh, I, I think you're wrong. We haven't got ahead of ourselves. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh but yeah i think like we're very much like moving with the art like the things that people submit to us in the community that we have um so we and a lot of it like you know as you said does just come from my sort of incessant twitter ranting um and a while back uh we had the thought of like oh what if we do a you know single author slightly smaller uh, edition for example um and so we've got two to three you know depending on uh, how things turn out, two to three mini editions of Lost Futures coming up ahead. Um, we've got obviously volume three in progress. And, and you know, I think when we last spoke about it, we're thinking about six volumes a year. That's about the speed we've been working at at the moment. So like really, you know, if people if people want to submit to Lost Futures, th- they can and should basically, uh, because like we'll, we'll, we'll move, we'll move with the art. And so there are some slightly, you know, uh, as Christian's alluded to, some exciting things ahead. We are hopefully going to transform from just being, you know, p- people who publish a zine into uh, more of a small press um, or a slight like media collective sort of thing. We also don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Like we just want to make, well, make, make and, you know, publish and get into the world like the cool and amazing things that deal with this idea of futures that could have been, should have been, or weren't like, just get that out into the world. How did you kind of get it out there? Was it just through Twitter? Cause I found you guys through Twitter. Um, <clears throat> I think it was Beck Lambert retweeted and I saw that tagline. I was like, yeah, I'm checking this out. I'm going to like this. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean like shout out to Beck. Beck has been one of our like biggest like supports and just ways that people have found us i think um yeah uh from the beginning um but yeah like how we (laughs) in the early days and yeah we're still in the early (laughs) days but in the early days how we grew was essentially um i in a in a oh i say in a past life but you know in uh, another thing that i do is various like campaigns and political stuff i uh, have developed a fairly fairly useful strategy in the past of building uh, followings from nothing, of just really aggressively following people on Twitter, um, just just, just oh, permeating into different networks, and then <laughs> yeah, um, just being like you, you. Um, but then also, um, uh, you know, the giving away the tricks of the trade. Just um, once we'd sort of identified the sorts of people that were interested in what we were then you know going on to those people's platforms or, or going on to you know prominent tweets by them and then in looking at the sorts of people who who were liking that and following them and and trying to build those connections as well um 
So a lot of it really has just been that. I think it's, yeah, it's 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 yeah. sad as well so far. I don't know how long it will carry us, but... Oh, I reckon it will. I, I think it is that kind of thing. If you get in that circle of people who are like that, it will spread. It's kind of like word of mouth virtually, isn't it? Um, yeah, People definitely. will pass it. And then I suppose people who have published review will be excited and share it with friends and it just keeps growing Yeah, that's what was, that snowball effect is definitely... Uh, where where we're sort of at at the moment i guess like where people are just really excited that they've got something published and then they'll post about it and then more people will see it um and you know it it if i had a marketing head it would be very excited because it you know the work does itself at that point but um, <laughs> yeah. but but also just like i guess like moving into and with different spaces as well so like um you know it's not it's not a world that i knew of really even before we did lost futures but uh you know we have a really prominent archaeological following um makes sense i understand why um but then also like thinking about um so our, our volume three is uh titled meanwhile and the theme was sort of based on this this uh scene at the end of uh twin Peaks season two um and uh and so like moving with that uh well i i think i can say this uh i will double check um but so our, our volume three is going to launch at god i've just forgotten the name of the conference beyond life and death 20 to 30 um in the middle of june so like again like moving with the the people that like us and the people that 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 care what we're we're, we're about um then being like ah people who like the weird work of david lynch and who think about strange semi-conscious dreams also like our work you know let's let's get that in front of the right people um so yeah like mo moving with change listening to the signs that are already there i think that's that's a lot of it yeah and i think we'll round up now but the final thing is where can people buy it where can they find you online so we have got oh well <laughs> as we've probably said a few times yeah um our, our sort of our main uh, where a lot of our conversations happen is on Twitter um, at Lost Futures Zine, I think it is. Mostly run by Kieran uh, doing his aggressive tweeting. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and you'll have links. We've got a, um, most of our, our social media accounts will, will point to a, a link tree where we have got links to our, our storefront on Big Cartel. I believe it is at um, lostfutures.bigcartel.com does that ring a bell Kieran? that is correct <laughs> that is correct um, and again you know uh, thing, things are coming in the future um, we are working on having a sort of central Lost Futures website um, but at the moment it's uh, our link tree mm. is probably where everything's hiding uh, or not hiding well, brilliant. Have you got any final words you'd like to say, Kieran, as well? Or uh, no, I think I think that's basically it. Um, and just the, you know, my my mother would tell me off. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. And yeah, I really like. I say I really loved it when I read it. I'm really looking forward to reading more. And it all sounds really exciting, honestly. Thank you so much. Next up, I have a chat with Richard Daniels, founder of Plastic Brain Press and creator of the zine, A Cult Area of Albion, a tongue-in-cheek part-to-work series about the weird and unusual in and around the fictional Lower Scarabee. We, we've got quite a lot to get into because you've got okay, quite yeah. a lot of projects. 
Um, but I think a good preface would be an exploration of the Plastic Brain Press, which you founded in 2018. If you could just explain to the listeners what kind of things you publish and produce with this. Yeah, okay. Um, well, first of all, Plastic Brain Press um, is run by a plastic brain. I'm just, you know, like his dog's body here on Earth. So um, everything comes through the plastic brain. And mainly what Plastic Brain Press publish is esoteric, sort of weird, odd fiction and poetry, that sort of thing, really. And we also do zines now. Just recently, we've started putting out a lot of zines. You said you kind of began your literary career writing on the back of bus tickets and sick packs. So I, I did say yeah, that, didn't did. I? Yeah. So <laughs> what draws you to the weird and the creepy and, you know, how did this all get going for you? Well, I've always wanted to, for a long, long time, really, I've always wanted to, to be a writer and do something sort of weird and creative. And um, when it sort of became possible to to do things in a lot more DIY fashion, like set up small presses and, and things like that and have your own podcast and, and whatever, it, you know, it's just an outlet for that kind of, all those ideas in your head and stuff. And it, because it's possible, I think, you know, mm. That's you know, if you're creative, then you should probably be engaging in, in you know the possibilities that are out there in this day and age. I suppose so. Yeah, uh, but like the kind of the weirdness to it, I suppose is, or what people consider weird or or odd or whatever is is usually just like another way of sort of saying, you know, the edge of kind of understanding or meaning or normality. That's usually where interesting things happen or ideas become possible so that's I mean that's why it appeals to me I I don't necessarily think it's always that weird but it seems to end up being weird yeah well I suppose it's your work kind of has a slightly dark like nightmarish Mm. (laughs) element to it you know (laughs) that's a good compliment (laughs) okay um yes I suppose yeah I think I think that my approach is I, I take it all as seriously as possible even though it's it's not really serious you know it's like the it's um being very forthright about everything whilst at the same time not believing any of it i suppose it's holding those two ideas together in my head that create some of the strange things i write about i guess yeah so is is any of that to do with from your childhood or is it just things you see when you're out and about like how where do these ideas form for you I don't know. I wonder. I wonder if it's because I grew up in a seaside town, um, and I've, I often feel that like that it's a very unique sort of environment or landscape in which to to grow up. Um, you know, because you have all the kind of the crazy summer time thing where it's always bright and lots of noise and tourists and large plastic things in gardens. You know, like illuminations and kind of all that surreal. Alice in Wonderland sort of ambience that you get at the seaside. And then in the wintertime, it's like a ghost town and everything is tatty and torn and kind of boarded up and the beach is empty and it's sort of like a a, a place you can go wandering. So there's two there's two kind of parts to a seaside town and I grew up with that, I so suppose. And is a lot of that the influence of low scarby? Is that low scarby? Sorry, Scarby. I read Scarby. <laughs> it's one no, of those no. things I said. I should have said out loud. Oh, that would have been a really good name for it. <laughs> no, yours is better. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I, so a lot of what I do, like the Aquateria of Albion, is like I sort of create 
uh, fictional places that, that sound as if they might exist somewhere like it, sort of in between the reality in which we're all operating. It's kind of like normality, but twisted or, you know, kind of a, a strange coating applied to it. And so that's perhaps in a way me trying to make sense of my experience of growing up by the seaside in a very kind of um, rural county. So Skegness is where I, I grew up and Skegness being in Lincolnshire, you know, there's like 50, 60 miles of nothing really to get to Skegness. So, you know, and then when you get there, it's a weird seaside town. So, you know, growing up around that all the time, I think is my sort of certainly influenced my writing in trying to create these fictional realities that are just kind of like the reality that we all experience, but sort of like with a slight dilation to the frequency or something yeah almost did you like growing up there or yeah no I, it... I really enjoyed it I like the surreal quality of you know it's a such a strange place to grow up and to think that you know when you're a kid it, it, you kind of you find it hard to to place yourself in the world and like what makes sense like we have a clock tower in Skegness and um Whenever I used to watch the news as a child, I saw um, like pictures of Big Ben or whatever. And in my head, it was the same. Like the clock tower in Skegness was the Big Ben that I saw on TV on the news, like most evenings or whatever. And you don't get a real sense of the world outside, do you? So to you, everything is is just kind of the world around you. So I thought everywhere was like a seaside town. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, you do. You 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 do, don't you? You sort of put your own what you know on everything and think that's what everyone is experiencing. Yeah. yeah. So it's not until you get older that you begin to differentiate, and by then it's it's too late, isn't it? I mean, imagine if everywhere was like a seaside town. It's like it's like every day being Christmas. It would be, yeah. The ice creams, the ninety nines. <laughs> yes, that's right. Going in the arcades. Yeah, love it. <laughs> if somebody got a copy of the OA. You know, they mm. open it up, tell them what can they expect? What are they going to find? In it? You're saluting them. <laughs> well, they're going to find like it's um, like a snapshot of strange things that have happened in a fictional place that is based on reality. So it's like um, like a core sample that somebody might have taken through a fictional town that is plagued by paranormal goings on and, and weird things. So, you know, like Low Scarabee you mentioned. So... I sort of give a bit of a history of the place and some of the strange things that have taken place there and some of the sort of the topography. And then I, you know, I've got eight, nine of these at the moment, all different places across Albion. So yeah, you know, time slips, hauntology, crypt, uh, cryptids, ufology. What kind of influenced the aesthetics of it? Because I really, I do really like the sort of look of it, you know, and you've done all these fake ads in it and yeah it's really well it I looks mean, really nice thank you yeah um so really the the influences from uh, i suppose um part work series from like the 80s and the 90s i don't think they tend to exist really anymore but you used to get like part works that you could each week they would come out or each month they would come out and you could sort of build it up and build it up and sometimes they had like um um ring binders or whatever you could collect and collect it and Sometimes they were sort of like historical. Sometimes it was like ghosts and things like that, or it might be the human body. And each week you'd get something that you could build your own human body and stuff. So those sorts of part work series. And, and my idea is that this is just one that's about uh, places that have suffered sort of like weird, occult, strange happenings. So Fortean events in these fictional towns. 
so it's all sort of looked at through a lens of it's already kind of nostalgic i suppose because um the conceit is that they were kind of written in the 80s and 90s and i really present myself simply as the archivist so i'm just retrieving these files from some uh you know dusty container that's in a industrial estate in the middle of nowhere could you give the listeners an example of maybe like one of the cases like one of the somebody called marjorie bomber who used to present the kids a kids tv show in the 1980s um called space workshop and um she was sort of like a the scientist type of character but in her spare time she was very much into ufology and had certain theories about aliens and and you know she she became a bit of a, an alcoholic and she had a bit of a sad end to her life and she lived out the final few years on the side of the A2358 because she believed it to be a sort of um, alien highway or UFO highway. And so she camped out there, convinced that it was just a matter of time before the aliens would sort of transport her into their craft and take her off. Uh, but she was found dead in a tent, unfortunately. Not good end for her. No, it wasn't really. But when they carried out the autopsy, they found very small cuts in like odd places on her body like behind her ears and to the bottom of her neck and her spine and stuff so you know some people would suggest that this demonstrates she had been um abducted by aliens you know previously as she had claimed so who knows maybe she was carried off in some sense her spirit Mm. maybe if not her body so that's that's an example of one person that's that's from the zine uh the the Aquataria, which is about the A2358. Um, that was OA number five. And then you've got the podcast that accompanies this. So how do mm. they sort of complement each other? Well, yeah, so the podcast, I've got four episodes of, of that out now, these sort of audio files, and they take a similar idea in that they'll explore a certain location which has something strange, a strange event or a happening or a story that's attached to it. But it's a bit more updated, so I suppose the original case files, like the the booklet part work files, are sort of like set in a past world, uh, whereas the, uh, the podcast is sort of like happening now, and it's sort of like me personally going to explore various locations or get roped into strange occult schemes. There's also a recently set up a YouTube channel, which will be a similar thing of me um, talking a bit about the world of the Aquataria of Albion and exploring different cases and events. What do you hope people will get out of this, out of that world and to create Primarily, I'd like them to be sort of entertained and enjoy it, you know, like if it provides them a little bit of lighthearted entertainment or whatever for half an hour as they read it, then that would be the first thing. But the second thing would probably be, you know, I'm warning people really of the dangers that are out there in terms of the occult and the paranormal. And, you know, I think a lot of people have, think it's you know it's something that used to happen or that you know it doesn't really exist but this stuff is out there and it's it's true so you're keeping them aware of it still trying to I mean it's not easy and a lot of time people just laugh at you and and tell you that you're crazy or whatever but you know that's the cross I have to bear I suppose (laughs) yeah if people are interested in what I'm doing then they can sort of the publishing small press publisher that I set up, Plastic Brain Press, it'd be good 
you could go along to the website and check that out because as I say we do a lot of zines now and um, I work closely with uh, a woman uh, a lady called Melody Clark uh, my girlfriend and she she's a huge part of everything that we do as part of Plastic Brain Press and also the Occultaria of Albion so she does a lot of the artwork you know you talked about the uh, the fake adverts that are in there basically she comes up with a lot of those and certainly does the the formatting and the artwork for all the different mm. aspects of OA stuff so you know a lot of her stuff is on plasticbrainpress.com um her name's Melody Clark so you know she's a great artist in her own right and I would uh, advise people to go and check out her work it's really good it's weird and macabre and fun yeah the aesthetics of it is I really like it it's really nice did she cut did she come up with the logo yeah, she keeps saying I should get it as a tattoo. You should. You're the I'm, face I of know, this. But, <laughs> I know, but I feel as if as soon as it's tattooed on me, permanently etched on me, then that's when it'll all just go sideways. <laughs> You'll be like, oh, God, I don't want to look at that any, that tattoo again. Exactly, that's what worries me. But, you yeah. have to get it somewhere you can't see. Yes, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I, I can think of a spot right now, yeah. Get, she should get it too, then you're, yes. you're both, okay. you both in it together. I know, we're branded then, yeah. aren't we? The OA. Wow. <laughs> well, having said that, I, I keep I keep having this idea now. It's like I really want to buy a little van and put like the decals, OA decals on the side, like it's sort of like the mystery machine or the Ghostbusters van or whatever, and just start incorporating it into the podcasts and the videos that I'm going to make. And, yeah, yeah, you should. I know. I think that's, I know, like, that's I, a good I'm idea. I'm excited by the idea. Yeah. I suppose it's like how crazy, how, how ridiculous do I want to, to take it? You know, I'll start with a van, but then it will be like the OA hot air balloon and then it will be the OA jet. <laughs> if you get that far, you know you've made it. You're getting a jet. Like... Oh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I won't, I won't be complaining. <laughs> the OA wallpaper, the OA toilet paper. OA toilet paper, there you go. That so... would have been your that would have been your COVID sale, though, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe if we ever have another lockdown, get ready with yes, that one. Yes, I will do. Yeah, or a face mask with it, with it on, obviously. Oh, do you know what? Face masks. You could probably still yeah, do that one. that's still got some longevity in it, hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we'll be wearing them for quite some time. Yeah, I should have mentioned my Patreon, I suppose. Yeah, go for it. Great. Go so, for yeah, it. the Occultaria of Albion has a Patreon page as well if you'd like to sort of help support me in making more zines and more videos and podcasts and things, you know, that would be wonderful. And you can find out all about that over at patreon.com forward slash Occultaria. So it's like joining a fan club. And what can the people get? What can they get for joining you? Um, yeah, well, they'll get a certificate to say that they are an Oak Knight, an Oak Knight, um, nice. which is part. Of the, thank you, which is part of the fan club. And they'll get free copies of the zines. They'll get a monthly newsletter. They'll get a badge, a membership card. God, and you, then that, that's actually really, really good. You give a lot. Yeah, you think? Oh, good. You do. I, so, get, I need to up my game. I don't give that much. Uh, I give. I give like trailers and pre previews and. Well, that's cool. Maybe episode extras. I know, but you're. We're getting a certificate off of you. That's. That's right. You're, yeah. You're, you're, you're giving it. Giving it to your subscribers. Absolutely. Well, if you're going to join a fan club. Finally, I chat to Simon Morton a geographer by training and a long-time creator of zines and comics. Much of his work explores the themes of place, landscape, nature and grief. 
we discuss where zine turned book as well as what is Britain, lie of the land, minor leagues and their relationships with the themes Simon explores. Hope you enjoy. Simon, it'd be great if you could tell the listeners a bit about yourself and how you actually got into creating zines in the first place. Yeah, sure. Um, So I've been making zines and comics for about 13 years now. And so I guess I kind of think of myself as a a writer and as an artist, um, because a lot of my zines have been combinations of visual materials. So drawing, comics, pictures, photos and stuff like that along with text as well. And I guess I first came to them, well, I first thought about them way back when I was in secondary school, about 20 odd years ago. And I had this idea that I wanted to make a comic. And I thought, I know, if I if I just make it at home and print it out, and fold it and staple it, then I'll have a booklet. And I thought nobody had had this idea whatsoever, <laughs> um, except, as it turns out, um, hundreds of years of self-publishing pamphlet production fanzine production and so on and so I discovered this whole other world actually many years later when I returned to that idea when I was actually doing a PhD um, in geography and I was so about 23 24 and I started thinking I really want to do something and I want to start drawing I want to start making something and so I started making zines back then and so I kind of have a dual life Uh, my day job is as an academic so I work at a university here in Bristol but I do stuff about the arts and culture and creative sector, which, although very interesting, has very little to do with my other kind of uh, world, which is, yeah, which is making comics and zines. I make a zine called Minor Leagues, which is kind of a regular annual to biannual kind of collection of writing stories, mostly memoir and non- non-fiction, um, but with a kind of growing focus on things like place and memory and that kind of stuff. And then I make the occasional sort of comic and zine as well for for other purposes as well. That's kind of what I was going to ask you as well. How did you kind of end up using zines to explore place and memory? Is that because of your day job, because you're a geographer? So does it kind of overlap in that sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I've always had a kind of an interest in, I guess kind of all my work has always been been memoir. It's always been based about um, memory and trying to kind of make sense of my past in my present. So for, for the first few years, the zines were very much kind of a kind of a clearing house for whatever I was going through in my life. So they were kind of like I was writing about stuff that was happening to me or I was drawing comics about that. And so one of the parts of that was a kind of I started to pay a kind of attention to kind of everyday life and like the little moments of everyday life that make things interesting even if they seem quite banal you know sitting in the garden if you have a garden or just walking down the street you know all those kinds of things mm. um and I realized that part of that was probably in response to very kind of to a growing presence although it's always been there this sense of I guess external judgment about having to be doing big exciting things all the time with your lives you know we see it in on social media platforms you see it with you know fear of missing out which has its own like FOMO brand now and obviously there's there's, there's been kind of a you know this this stuff has happened forever you know the sense of you're never quite living as much as you should be and so I started kind of exploring that stuff in my zines and comics as a kind of a counteraction to that to try and not get myself caught up in this kind of sense that I wasn't really doing doing what I wanted to do. And then at the same time as doing that, I was also doing my PhD, which again was about arts organisations. It wasn't really about the the broader terrain of academic geography, which um, 
for listeners who don't who don't know, and and why would you? Because it's it's a weird corner of the world. Geography these days covers a whole host of things, you know, all the way from economic geography through historical, cultural, um, post-colonial. There's a whole range of different geographies out there. But what they're really kind of focusing on is the relationship between places and spaces, identity and people and power. So a lot of it draws on this idea that that space isn't naturally doesn't naturally have a kind of a set of conditions in it that presupposes how people should act so you know if you think about a park somebody has decided that that is a park Mm. there's no reason that the park um the land of the park is any more likely to be a park than the land that's underneath the road or the street next door but humans kind of do a thing where they delineate stuff and then they say this is what happens in here and that's what happens in there and then within that there's a whole microcosm of other stuff happening as well so like in a park you know um, depending on what time of day depending on who you are and how you feel that park may be public it might be exciting to be in it might be scary it might be threatening it might be genuinely dangerous you know there's all of these layers of our encounters with space and in one way or another geography looks at that stuff and so I was reading about a lot of this stuff and I'd done that kind of stuff undergraduate and in my master's as well and so that was always kicking around and I think that was because I I moved around a lot as a kid so by the time I was 23, 24, was living in Bristol. I'd lived in, so I can remember now, I'd lived in Kent, Surrey, Shropshire, Buckinghamshire, Devon, Cornwall, and Wales. So I'd moved around quite a lot. And so I never... Yeah, re- you've been all over the place. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, all in the South, admittedly, but I, I had never really kind of... Um, I, I didn't really have a sense of um, rootedness. And my family came, my dad's side of the family all came from rural Kent. And then my Mum grew up in Kent, all of her family from sort of Sheffield, Yorkshire way. But I only lived in Kent for the first 18 months of my life. And I don't, you know, I remember it from seeing elderly relatives. But so I didn't really have a connection to that kind of stuff. Those kind of longer tales of, you know, where are you from? Where's your family from kind of stuff. Mm. So I think I'd always had that interest. And then um, I started kind of, so I'd always kind of been interested in this stuff when I was making zines anyway. And, and in about 2016, I I stopped making the autobiographical comics that I was making and shifted into sort of combinations of prose and photos. And, and that kind of started me in that kind of space. Still similar topics where I started to kind of, I guess, explore in a bit more depth some of those those kind of early ideas about location and memory and landscape. And I did a graphic novel um, back in 2015, actually, that was um, about growing up in um, Buckinghamshire. So I, I moved from Shropshire to a town called Marlow, which is where we lived and my dad was working on the radars at Heathrow. And so kind of like a sort of teenage years in the suburb and suburbs. And that story is very minimal. There's very few words. There's lots of very sparse pictures. And I started, I guess, to kind of evoke a sense of landscape in my work. I started to think about that kind of stuff and senses of place and trying to kind of get the feelings of things. But it wasn't until um, about sort of 20... So in 2017, early 2017, my dad was diagnosed with cancer and died sort of within within six weeks of diagnosis. And around that time and just before that time, I'd sort of been talking to my dad about wanting to do some kind of piece of work. I don't know whether it was a book or a zine or a graphic novel or what about um, where we'd grown up in Shropshire. And so um, when that came about, when my dad died, and naturally sort of my my family so I have an older brother and my mum we were just kind of like 
we were talking a lot around that time about, oh, yeah, do you remember when we lived there? And it was that kind of time, the last sort of moment when we were all together as a family, because after after that moment, in the sense that, you know, we became teenagers, we moved house, and then, you know, we weren't all living under each other's feet in the same way that we were when we were kids. And, um, and so we were kind of remembering that, and that kind of led me back down that path, um, I guess. It kind of, it was that kind of, that event that made me really kind of start thinking about what it was to have roots or where have I come from and those kinds of questions yeah it's funny because when someone dies it it actually brings you all back together doesn't it but then obviously one of you goes so it's it's quite a weird circle isn't it you've all gone your own ways and then all the family comes around yeah absolutely I mean so we could because so the reason we had moved around a lot was for my dad's job he was um, an electrical engineer but he worked on radars you know, sort of, so these these were the radars that map aerospace, that send all the data about where planes are back to the air traffic controllers. And he started doing this in the early 70s. Um, and his job involved being fairly kind of mobile. So he would work in, on different radar stations, or he'd have a job on one for a few years and then get another one and move around. So, you know, he had left home himself when he was about 17. And he grew up in Maidstone from quite a kind of a, a large and close-knit kind of working class family. And he sort of moved and went out into the world and that was something that was a bit kind of novel I guess in some respects uh, during that time anyway I guess the 60s and 70s when people were starting to kind of move yeah. around a lot and so we kind of inherited that kind of nomadness into well not a huge nomadness we did stay in some places for quite a while but but that sense of you know independence and moving around and that kind of stuff and so the family is sort of what's left of our family is scattered around around the um around the country so when my dad was ill um, his sister and his nephew, so my cousin, came down from Liverpool, and my godparents, who are out in East Anglia, came down. So we sort of had that that kind of new version of the family as well. And my brother lives in San Francisco as well, so he had to come over, obviously, when when all this stuff was happening. So there was a kind of a sense that we were we were both kind of all coming together to kind of deal with what was happening, but also, but geographically having to kind of traverse distances as well to kind of do that kind of sense and that kind of made me think as well about those you know what does distance mean you know between people and and both geographic and sort of um, linear you know and also kind of emotional and and, and that kind of stuff and also temporal because I guess that's the other thing I haven't really talked about is I started getting really interested in time and this other thing that happened after my dad died was I started watching Time Team um, the UK television program where they have just three days per episode to do an archaeological dig um, and I just got obsessed with it after my dad died, and we'd watched it as kids, but not necessarily in in a way that would suggest that that would be the thing that I would go to in my grief. But I did, and I got obsessed with. Well, I reignited an earlier interest in history, history and, and archaeology, and actually talking to my brother, I discovered that he had also done the same thing and gone back into Time Team as well. That's really weird, isn't it? Yeah. So we, we're not entirely sure why. It wasn't like my dad's favourite programme or anything, but we we did watch it as a family, I guess. It's kind of a comfort show, though, isn't it? It's oh, yes. Just, it's just nice. It's just a nice programme. It's fun, it's light-hearted, and it's exciting to see what they find. Yeah. So it might it have really just is. been that. Yeah, exactly. And so I got kind of really into that, and, um, and have since then kind of just become rather obsessed with both family history, local history, and archaeology. So I've, I've sort of volunteered on a couple of archaeological digs. I've read a bunch of books. I've, you know, I've got really into that kind of stuff. And so I think for me, like, I just thought about, you know, you know, geography is space and then, you know, history and archaeology is time. And those two things kind of really combined 
you know, after my dad died. So I suddenly started being interested in exploring those and that kind of fed into the into the zines then. Yeah. And I mean, that leads nicely into the fact that your book, Where, is published today. Yes. And that explores all of this, doesn't it? Life, death, memory, where you grew up, your dad's job. And, yeah. and that actually did start life as a zine, didn't it? So how did that evolve? How did it eventually become a book and what's it about? Yeah, so I, well, I... So while my dad was ill, and shortly after he died, I continued making minor leagues, my, my zine. So I'd make, you know, a, new, a couple of new issues of that. And as I said earlier, these were kind of like clearing houses for my thoughts and feelings. You know, there was a way of processing whatever I was going through in my life. And actually around the time that dad died, I lost my two remaining grandparents and a great uncle and my, my father-in-law was ill. So it was kind of a really difficult kind of time. And, but as we kind of started to come out of the worst of that, I started to kind of revisit this idea of doing doing a kind of a big project about where where we grew up. And so um, where the book um, is, it's kind of an account of my dad's illness and his passing um, woven through with kind of accounts of me revisiting where we grew up. Um, and also um, a kind of sort of, uh, I guess, a deep topography, as Nick uh, Papadimitri would call it, a kind of like uh, going very deep into the kind of historical strata and layers of quite a small geographical area. So that area is it's basically one big hill called Titterstone Clee Hill in South Shropshire. And then on the, at the bottom of Titterstone Clee is a little village called Canaan, which is where I lived um, for, for between the ages of four and 11 and then the nearby town was Ludlow, and it was sort of near Hereford and Lempster and Shrewsbury. So that's kind of sense of where it was. But but I kind of started to kind of really want to revisit this place and really kind of understand what was happening. And and the name where question mark basically comes from this sense of me trying to understand where I was from and what it was to be from somewhere where you weren't actually necessarily born or necessarily kind of had any kind of what we would understand as as roots. And so I started kind of doing this, when was this? Probably start, of, so end of 2017, start of 2018. And because I'd already got, you know, readers um, of my zine, kind of an established community of people who read and I corresponded with about my work, I thought, I'm never going to finish this project if I don't serialise it, if I don't just get little bits out the door as soon as they're done, otherwise I'll just sit on it forever. And so I used where basically as a... Um, minor league sorry is a kind of a a container almost for where so i then published where in four installments and um uh between yeah 2018 and 2020 or the end of 2019 and each installment was about 100 and something pages long and i printed it all off at home on my um, my wheezy old laser printer and then I kind of handmade these um, these covers with little French flaps on and then I stapled them all together I bought a really hefty staple yeah. if we talk about zines we could definitely nerd out about staplers but a really hefty staple that could go through you know hundreds of sheets of paper at once and I just kind of made it um, made it in that, in that kind of modular way where I was just sort of like plowing through and I didn't really know what I was doing but I was just spending a lot of time um, initially online in you know in archives, looking in the old newspapers, um, genealogy, any kind of history book you could kind of get your hands on. Because that bit of the world, that bit of Shropshire, isn't actually super well known. I don't feel there's a no, there's a kind no. of a sense of it being um, quite a kind of um, hidden gem, and certainly Titterstone Clee, which is 
it's the third highest hill in in um in Shropshire but the um but in terms of its com- competition being uh, the Rekin and Brownclee there's only a matter of feet in it between them so it's one of three very big and prominent bits on the landscape and you can see it from all around and there's there's a rumor that um traveling east from Clee Hill or from Titterton Clee there is no higher land until you hit the Urals in Russia. So there's this kind of, um, which I think apparently is a myth attached to quite a lot of different high places in the UK, but but there's this sense of um, of it being quite prominent and yet kind of forgotten. And on Clee yeah. Hill, there were um, Bronze Age burial sites. There was a, There's a huge Iron Age hill fort where rather than using traditional embankments and ditches they basically use the local stone that they've quarried that to have a huge dry stone wall which you can still kind of see there and then the radar station where my dad worked was sort of plonked in the middle of this and so there was just all of these stories that I was trying to uncover about you know historical figures forgotten moments in the newspapers and stuff like that and then later physical archives in in um, Shrewsbury as well. I love that you did that in it though sort of parallels it with your own story mm. just because when it's your own thing going on, it's like, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. And then you think like 100 years ago or however many years ago, actually something else crazy was going on or really significant. And it all just kind of overlaps, doesn't it, into one, all all within that land. I really enjoyed that sort of thread through it, yeah. along with the pictures and everything. Yeah, because so, yeah, you, you're good at art as well. <laughs> Thank you. So that's yeah, another I mean, thing. Kind of The reason I really wanted to kind of dig in through those different layers and those different events and there's kind of other stories and that because they're the kind of things that make up the history and the memory and the kind of sort of almost the resonance of a particular kind of place. And I think that those were kind of things that could like reanimate and reimagine what was happening there. But it's also kind of a grounding experience as well, because like you say, like I'm not the first person to suffer from grief or trauma or be, or feel dislocated. You know, I mean, what's really interesting about the, the, the Clee Hills and particularly Titston Clee is that, um, it was really heavily quarried for centuries, and especially in the 19th century, although this had been happening before, there was a huge influx of migrants, economic migrants from around the country um, with quarrying experience to come and work on the hill. So much like my dad had come there to work on the hill from somewhere else, so had um, so had all these other people. And, and actually in the 19th century into the 20th century, that got so um, um, sort of both... Um, linguistically incestuous and kind of like remote in terms of the fact that Clear Hill was very remote for, for years until cars and proper roads, it could be, you know, you could be snowed in or cut off for months on end up there. Um, it had its own dialect that people in the town in Ludlow, three miles away, couldn't really understand. So it had its own language at one point, well, dialect rather than language, but it had its own way of speaking. So this idea that a place has, it can be a kind of like a sort of has these historical resonances but also goes I'm sort of I'm waving my arms around here but in a kind of sort of like a horizontal <laughs> and a vertical way and I think it's a grounding thing as well because it's about trying to understand who who you are and where you're from and there's a bit in the book where I'm talking about the fact that the old village school that I went to for a while has been like torn down all the places where I used to play have been built on and you know there's a moment when I'm kind of like feeling angry about this but I kind of also point out that well that's no different to what I did because it's so funny that, we... that you bring that up because when I read that bit I literally thought I've been like that before because you think oh this is my place my whatever and but like you say we've been those people to somebody else 
living in their house, tearing down whatever thing meant something to them. So that really stuck out to me when I read that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, because that, that's exactly the kind of thing that, I, you know, I was feeling very guilty of this. And so the house that we lived in, in in Shropshire was sort of built, we, it was built as like a new estate and we moved into it with the first owners, but it was built on the grounds along with that sort of um, two dozen other houses of an old mansion house. So we were basically on the grounds of an old mansion and the mansion building is still sat there and I write in the book about kind of exploring it. But the um, But the sense was that my house was literally built on you know the fields and farm bits and stables or whatever of this kind of former place so and I think that the other thing I was kind of striving for thinking about anyway although it never kind of quite came to the foreground in the way I thought it might in the book was especially at this moment you know Brexit and national identity and the right kind of history being the only kind of history you can have and history not being open to revision according to the um according to the state and various right-wing people, to kind of remind, even on a small scale, that like we're always living on top of one another, one another's ghosts and pasts and times, and this sense that we have any ownership over that any more than anybody else who has come from anywhere else to kind of come and engage in this stuff is obviously absurd. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a fallacy. And, um, and so there was always that in the back of my mind as well, although I finished writing it before our most recent kind of horror show, but obviously... I was writing it during the kind of the, the protracted Brexit negotiations. So it's trying to kind of say that, you know, as as English people or British people or or whatever the right wing might like to call to call those of us who who have historically always um had family ties that go back in this particular um plot of land, even that kind of sense of ownership is is a kind of a nonsense anyway, you know. We're, we're, we're gifted where we are, yeah. and um, and then you make the most of it, and you have to understand all those overlapping stories and other people's stories, and in order to kind of recognise that you're just part of a continuum, which I think is a kind of a, a positive thing to think about. Yeah, I think it's nice. Although I was saying, I get where you're coming from when you go back to the school and you see it's all trashed and everything. Having those layers in the landscape. There's something really nice about that, exploring it and just thinking who would have stepped here, what would their life been? Like you say, it's something good. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of, and I think it's just sort of, it feels like a, and I think that combination of things basically is kind of what drew me back into this kind of stuff is that kind of, that that sort of felt like there's a political imperative for me to explore this um, for myself, you know, as much as anything else, you know, it's not necessarily that I, I have a platform to preach on, but I also like the idea of being the unreliable narrator, you know, I'm writing this book and I'm trying to understand stuff about it myself. Was it kind of therapeutic to do that, just write everything down when you're going through something like that? Yeah, I mean, it kind of was, but it was also kind of, um, I was talking to um, Jeff Young, who's another writer on on Little Toller, who wrote a book called... um, called ghost town about growing up in liverpool although he's sort of he's older than me and kind of grew up there in the 60s and 70s and we were talking about this and i was sort of talking about how um well basically his book kind of has a lot of grief in it as does mine and actually we both kind of agree that we're not trying to kind of you know get over death or try and you know get over my dad's death or kind of get past it or anything like that but it's actually about becoming comfortable with living with his absence living you know and living also with the kind of so I write about in the book as like the absence of his presence and then the presence of his absence because you have this two kind of moments where you're both it's a very physical feeling the fact that he isn't here as well as the fact that he isn't here which is also like a 
like not a physical feeling as a gap. And so I was trying to kind of come to terms essentially with, with living with grief and living with, um, dad's memory. And in that sense, it was actually kind of, it was very therapeutic. It was very nice to kind of think about him and, and, um, Mm. And kind of sort of keep him uh, alive, I guess, in some other kind of way. And I think that's another thing that that I like about kind of a lot of the kind of place and memory writing, you know, the stuff that you talk about in your podcast and the stuff that, that we obviously share in common is that is that it's often about that connection with something bigger. It's about kind of holding on to as well as understanding what happens when you hold on to a particular kind of past or a particular kind of memory. And then also what happens to let go of some and you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's also kind of like, I mean, the book is also kind of a, a bit of a critique of the rural idyll as well. Um, so obviously in it, I, you know, I talk about having, I did have a very idyllic childhood, but also I was very aware growing up through the experiences that I had in, in school that it was also an area where there were um, huge socioeconomic deprivation problems. There were loads of issues in and around where I was living and, and I saw them and, you know, and I would kind of experience them in many ways and that was this kind of like counterpoint so I yeah we didn't have much money but I was able to kind of like we had books in the house and and I lived near a wood <laughs> and near a like a like an iron age hill fort in Canaan Canaan camp and I my brother and I explored this old empty building and there was Canaan court which is the old manor house so I always had a really privileged childhood in that sense as well mm. and we um and so I'm kind of like in the book, I'm also kind of trying to explore a little bit of that sense of the rural idyll, that sense that, you know, you make up this kind of this rosy story, which is completely true in some respects about my about my past, but also recognizing that simultaneously it isn't true, that there's these other kind of forces at work that mean that how we talk about landscape, how we talk about places is also not not true, you know, Um you know, and there's kind of there's I mean like uh Kareen Fowler's work, isn't it? That's what I mean, isn't it? The Green and Unpleasant Land. I don't know if you've read that yet, but that's fantastic about uh, I haven't. The, it's about colonial links to um kind of to slavery, but in the countryside and talks about how how the kind of the idea of the countryside is constructed and and mythologized and all these kinds of things, but in order to tell a particular version of the rural idyll in many ways, but completely obscure its its reliance and its its dominance and its kind of um, um, complete kind of immersion within within kind of slavery as as, as an industry and as a, and as a, as a moral code and all those kinds of terrible kind of issues that go with that. Um, so I was kind of thinking about that a little bit in the book as well, and um, and that's kind of and so that's kind of so to go back to the drawing thing because um, for the for, for for the listener, where is basically. It's probably about half text. It's about four hundred pages long, and it's about half half it's about text, and then half of it is um, illustrations, drawings, comics, um, kind of found things like old newspaper articles, that kind of stuff, and photographs. And it's all like one continual narrative, but it kind of swaps between. Sometimes it's prose, and sometimes it's sort of a set of drawings. And a lot of the drawings I did in there were deliberately quite childlike. Um, although I do have some of my old child, my childhood drawings in there as well. I love that you did that too. Uh, it's surprising you still had that stuff as well. Yeah, my mum had a big box of them, and um, when I was working on the book, she kind of I, I managed to I, I got it off her, and it was just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there's one of the, my favourite things about that is really early on in the book. There's a, there's a. It turns out, I mean, God, schooling, exploring attitudes and values. I'm reading it from it now. Um, yeah. On the 27th of April, 1994. Um, I had to fill out this form that says things like, I like art, 
that's what I like. And I've written art, Mark, who was my friend, um, my family, various friends, guitar, various food, cats, sci-fi, and nature. And that's kind of still pretty accurate, I guess. Um, I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard from, from, from Mark in 20 odd years, that, but um, other than that, generally speaking, I like my various friends. And um, the, the, biggest, the best measure of personal success is learning that I could draw. Mm-hmm. Um, what I admire most other people is modesty and kindness. And then the, my favourite one That is, was actually quite deep for a child to write that, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, I was a nerd. What can I say? And then, um, <laughs> and then I like this. The epitaph I would like most is a kind boy who enjoyed life and loved cats. And then um, if I could have one wish, it would be to never die, Ooh. which is obviously, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just like when I read that, I was like, oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that kind of, so, so mixing that kind of archival stuff with those child childlike drawings is kind of to get and evoke a sense of that kind of time, but also the unreliability of that stuff. Mm. So there's a big section, which is sort of like um, about kind of, I guess it's like a fictionalized sort of day in day in the life as, of me as a kid, and it's all about like, you know climbing trees and playing on my friend's farm and doing all this kind of stuff. Yeah, but it's deliberately supposed to be a little bit like, oh yeah, that's 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 kind of it. Can we really trust this memory kind of thing? Um, but yeah, and then there's all sorts of other just paintings and drawings um, in there as well because I've always kind of been interested in that interplay between visual and textual or you know, yeah technically the visual is a text but you know what i mean like 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 written word and drawn things um and i kind of sort of and it's sort of come out of, you know being interested in comics but what i always liked about that is that apparently like drawing or sorry reading pictures so if you're reading a comic actually looking at pictures kind of uses a different part of the brain to processing written text mm-hmm. so actually what happens is you is you actually get kind of like a different emotive or cognitive response depending on that stuff. So um, so by playing with that kind of combination of when is something a drawing, when is it a photograph, and when is it a piece of text, you can kind of create, hopefully, an, an extra kind of sort of layer of emotional resonance for the reader. Because obviously text can very be, and I, my prose is quite can be quite specific, so having drawings that are a bit more vague where you could almost see yourself, you know, climbing that tree or you know running down that hill or whatever mm. that kind of adds kind of a different kind of connection because it because it kind of yeah processes different bits in the brain so I've always been interested in that combination of things yeah you're you're obviously in the what is Britain does quite a lot of that doesn't it yes and the ley lines yes that's right so so I did um there is a wonderful American sort of publishing imprint um called ley lines confusingly nothing to do with ley lines as we might talk about them here um but basically that series is about connections between the artists and cartoonists particularly fear with particular cultural figures or cultural movements so it's that idea of connections which gives that series that name and um l and kevin who run that they asked me if i want to do a book so i said oh yes please and i did one and i thought well why not take on alfred watkins who is obviously the um well, the, I say obviously, king. the layman's king <laughs> yes alfred watkins in the 1920s basically came up with the idea that in prehistory different sites were linked by long straight trackways and that had various kind of um usages whether they were ritual or trade or transport or whatever and he basically like looked at maps looked at the landscape and basically stipulated that you could join these all up 
and it was only much later on that that kind of became um, sort of looped into the kind of what we might understand now with the kind of you know the esoteric kind of energy lines and and all of those kinds of things that kind of came out of the 1960s. But essentially, Watkins was kind of doing that. So I did a so I did a book called uh, The Lie of the Land, which is sort of around that sense of the rural idyll. So it's a little booklet that's kind of uses old. Um, photographs of kind of the British countryside that I've kind of painted over or collaged, and then I've and found text from various books, um, some of them Alfred Watkins, some other people's, which basically kind of try and explore this sense that um, we have quite we can have quite a fixed view of the English natural landscape and what nature looks like and what these rolling hills look like, but actually it's it's been made up um, and kind of. I mean, not only is the landscape constantly changing. I mean, the field patterns that you see in, in the in the world today are only could be anywhere between two and three hundred years old, um, but also much more modern as well. Um, and that to some extent, there's not really anywhere in this country that hasn't been affected directly by human impact. You know, by humans actually yeah. digging or delineating or cutting open or moving things around. And so. Um, and the other thing that happens is obviously we get then get representations of particular kinds of countryside. So um, railway posters, particularly um, with you know particular versions of like the rolling the rolling hills of England, which is kind of a very specific you know image of probably the Cotswolds or, or the Chilterns or something, um, become kind of completely um, ingrained in our kind of popular cultural consciousness around what what does the countryside look like it's like it becomes very naturalized and all these rural folk they're just the uh, they're salt of the earth they're part of nature and then the city mm. folk are the you know the enlightened ones and and all of that kind of stuff is is again a kind of a political kind of gaze so so lie the land kind of explores that but in a kind of an oblique way you know it's not kind of super specific about it it's kind of you know it helps to kind of um, hopefully kind of takes readers towards that and then what is britain is one that i made and self-published uh, on my own which is basically the same kind of size and format same kind of stuff old photographs found text but it was kind of around um kind of national identity and um power and so it kind of it speaks to the same things and, and i'm thinking that i might try and do a little series of these um these as kind of more more explicitly political work because all of my work has been kind of like small p you know you can tell that i'm a i'm a i'm a progressive lefty and by intent from <laughs> most of the stuff that i write and stuff um but i just got really fucked off with the world and just started going like, i don't know what i can do so i started doing this and so the what is britain zine um is um all the proceeds go to charity so they go to a few different charities and i'm just trying to think about doing more stuff like that because a lot of the zine culture is about you know um, doing things for yourself, but sharing, being part of community, and doing that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's only one very small thing to be doing, but I'm hoping to kind of try and just start chipping away at some of those things. Because also, like, there's a lot of nature writing out there that, that although it sometimes registers this stuff, still gets caught up on its, well, caught up its own ass really about this kind of like, um, it's what um, oh, I'm going to forget her name now. Um, Kathleen Jamie, do I mean that? Um, who called? Um, he basically refers to like the lone raptured male um, of nature writing. You know, go out in the in, in the wilderness and feel overwrought by all these kinds of things. And and it's true, it's a completely perfect takedown because actually it's about um, 
it's about that exact stuff. It's about this kind of like people not people thinking about their own presence in something without thinking about how that that place that they're in has been produced by all this other stuff. And so there's loads of really kind of interesting writing that doesn't take that that position, which I'm really interested in as well. So again, it's just another way in which that that excitement and interest I have in place and geography studies, as it were, has um has kind of come to the fore, I guess. Yeah, it is funny what you say about the rolling hills, though, and those train ads, because that is so true. It's like they were man-made fields for farming and everything. And, and you know, even if you think of an old church on the landscape, there would have probably been a time when somebody would have been saying, oh, that looks dreadful, that's awful, because, you know, you get that now with wind turbines. and Exactly, exactly. And it's that kind of sense that there are, there are certain things that can change and certain things can't change. And, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm in Bristol and... Obviously, this last summer we had the um, the toppling of the Colston statue, mm-hmm. um, which which was brilliant because we were on the march when it happened. But we but it, the march kind of stopped because something was happening. We didn't know what. And then we looked on Twitter and like about maybe five or ten minutes after it happened, we saw, oh my god, that just happened! That video of the kind of the statue coming down. So um, again, for listeners, this is the the statue of Edward Colston, who was a, a slaver. Um, in the 18th century in Bristol, after whom a lot of, he was a benefactor of the city in many ways, and a lot of um, place names and institutions bear his name. There's been a statue of him in the centre of town for since the 1870s, I think, but certainly the 19th century. Um, that was kind of a real friction point for lots of the different diaspora communities in, in Bristol, basically, who didn't really want to walk past this guy who was responsible for not only the death of hundreds of thousands of people, but also the dislocation, disruption, all of the stuff that goes with colonialism. And they, they'd spent 20, a good 20 years trying to peacefully get the plaque that's on the bottom of the statue changed to say, you know, basically say, hey, look, this dude was a slaver. And... Um, they refused, and but the people who refused were constantly um, the people who were kind of financially vested in maintaining um, Colston as a brand, um, the merchant venturers who were kind of a private philanthropic body as well. So there's this kind of, there's that, and then when that came down, that was amazing, but everybody obviously started saying, oh, you can't change history. It's like, well, I'm not sure that, like, you know, taking down the statue is changing history. I think it's, I mean, it is, but in a positive way, but it's like, it's actually making it's that a history, recognition. Yeah, it's making it visible and recognised and talked mm. about, and it is now going to be in the museum, which I think is exactly where it should be. It's not about a denial, but it's about a recognition that should public space be used to memorialise people who, um, well, who were mass murderers or party to mass murder. So, anyway, so but this sense again that some things in the landscape could change. You can knock down old buildings. You can move on traveller sites. You can, um, you know clear houses in order to kind of create you know new gentrified spaces there are some things you can do to change things forward but there are some things you can't change you're not allowed to do Mm. those kind of um move those things and that's kind of part of it isn't it it's the same thing about what can you move and what can't you move what can stay in the landscape and what can't and i think unless you have a dialogue with with that past and with that history you can't ever really know the answers or make good guesses about what what to do that's best no, definitely. Um, and to summarise, what do you hope people will get up your work? I mean, we've 
I feel like they can probably guess well, <laughs> from our chat. Um, if you want a kind of geographically informed, collaged, esoteric rant about countryside, then I've got some zines for you. But um, <laughs> no, really, the, the thing is, I what I've always loved about the zine community and the comics community, the kind of the weird little niche corner that I, I've been in for the last few years, is it's a real sense of... Um, a kind of a, a bond between the people who make things and the people who read things. Sometimes the readers are also makers and sometimes they're your friends or, but you know, after doing this stuff for how many years, I've got friends all over the world who I just have because I've made a zine. I've literally just put some words on a piece of paper and printed them out and sent them somewhere. And, and, you know, and that kind of stuff is really important. So I've always sort of really important to me that like, I hate kind of saying, Oh yes, I'm a writer and an artist. You know, I always find that kind of stuff. I personally do use those, those words, obviously, about myself, but I always think that culturally they put a huge distance between the people who make stuff and the people who read stuff because actually they can be the same people. So I'm hoping yeah. that, like, a sense of connection, um, I always welcome people to email me and have a chat and I often go and do zine fairs when the world is more open and do that kind of stuff. So I hope that people kind of can see something that connects with them in it. And that's, I mean, that my one... I'm really excited about the book, which is being published by little little yes. toller um and um it's amazing and it's like a huge new step forward for me into some kind of stuff but i always i've always said that self-publishing and making zines is is a destination in and of itself i'm not doing it to get published i'm not doing it to become famous i'm doing it because i believe in doing it in that way and i just hope that if people kind of share those kinds of things or are interested in those kinds of values as much as they are in like landscape and history um then they might want to check some of it out. I think that is the lovely thing about zines, isn't it? They're just lovely and kind of homemade and the people are passionate about what they've done. They're they're honest and real and they're not that expensive either, which is also nice. Yes, exactly. You feel like you can chat to these people, like you can talk to people about their zines, tell them that you enjoyed it, they want to share stories. It's nice. Yeah, I mean, like Minor Leagues has a has a letters page. I mean, these days that's mostly like, you know, um, direct messages or, or emails page but basically you know people get in touch it's kind of a sense that I want to kind of keep that conversation going and yeah and I think that that's yeah and, and there's there's always as with any kind of political kind of movement there's always conversations within within zines about what is a zine what isn't a zine um, who can make zines and who can make zines about what and the general consensus is obviously always inclusive but there are always these spaces where you know, I think, I mean, Justin Bieber and was it Nike or somebody made a zine? Did they? And everybody kind of pointed out, they called it a zine, they marketed it as a zine, but it obviously isn't a zine, because if you've got, like, millions of quid behind you and you're doing it for profit to further a brand, then it probably is not a zine. No. <laughs> but, um, so there are all these conversations that happen about stuff, but, um, yeah, but I think that the generally at their heart, it's about that conversation, it's about making something for the joy of making that thing and kind of having a voice that maybe you wouldn't normally have, especially for for people who, you know, who don't normally have a voice in society. And therefore there's a huge kind of like queer kind of movement, people of colour. There's a huge kind of um, sort of radical punk and underground space in scenes, which is for other voices as well. So it's like an educational space as well. It's a sharing space. It's a connecting space. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's fun as well. <laughs> you mm. can just talk about it for, you know, I could talk about zines for hours and, and I often do. 
the only thing I talk about more is local history, which which also equally bores my non-zine, non-history friends to death as well. Hello, he's off it off on one one. Yeah, again. yeah. My friend Rich uh, joked that I should start a, um, a local history tour called uh, "Nobody Asked But," um, which I think accurately sums up about my my desire to uh, share information that completely unsolicited yeah. about what used to be under this building or what that tiny kink in the hedge means. Yeah. That's the thing, if you love it, you just want to tell people, don't you? Can't help it. Exactly, exactly. So if you so if you don't want to be bored by that kind of stuff, maybe that's maybe stay away from my work. But if you do want to be bored, please get in touch and I'm always excited to chat about stuff. And also if you happen to know anything about local history in Bristol, which is my current passion, then um definitely get in touch. Yeah. And and where can people buy your new book? Where and where can they get hold of the zines if they want to have a read? So um, where you can get directly from the publisher. So the publisher called Little Toller. Um, and yeah, just go to Google them, go to their website. You can buy the book from them. My zines, you can get directly from me. I have a shop, a big cartel shop. It's called smoo.bigcartel.com. But again, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram if you just search my name or my website, I'm simon-morton.co.uk. Just got a new website, so I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Great. Well, really enjoyed chatting with you, Simon, and congrats on the book you again. Too. Thank you very much. It's very exciting yeah. and slightly unnerving. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you like the sound of any of the zines, don't forget to go and support all these creators by getting yourself a copy. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related, please head over to senseofplacepod.com. And if you are enjoying the show and you haven't already, please do consider supporting my goal to to cover the cost of the podcast's yearly fees. I'm 47% of the way through the goal, and since the last episode, I got a donation again from the lovely Aaron, who's been super supportive of the podcast, and also Cindy Vasco, who is actually a guest on the show, the Urban Exploration one, and she has some really amazing photography if you'd like to check her out. Anyway, that's all from me. Hope you have an amazing week and I'll speak to you again soon.